Hello and welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby and today I'm also welcoming to the podcast professors Mario Giampietro and Roger Strand. Mario Giampietro has a varied academic background, to put it mildly, specialising at different times in engineering, biology, economics, social sciences and complexity science. And he's now a professor at the Institute of Environmental Science and Technology in the Autonomous University of Barcelona, where he works across many disciplines, as you'd expect, with a focus on the complexities that arise in how we understand and model environmental sustainability and development. Meanwhile, Roger Strand is a philosopher of science at the University of Bergen in Norway. He was trained originally as a biochemist, but has since gone on to focus on issues related to scientific uncertainty and, again, complexity, and how these interface with society and with policymaking. So, Roger and Mario, hello and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, I think with the weight of interdisciplinary expertise the two of you have between you, we could probably talk about pretty much any issue, uh, at least in the field of science for policy. But today we have agreed to start at least with a past research project called Magic Nexus, which you are both closely involved in. Mario, perhaps I could ask you first, what is or was Magic Nexus? Uh, yeah, the Magic Project, uh, it is acknowledging the implication of complexity for the working of science. And the implication of complexity is that basically all models are wrong. Uh, some are useful, <laughs> but they are wrong. Uh, in the sense that in order to be capable of generating crispy numbers, you have to simplify the framework uh, of analysis, what are the concerns. So basically you have to just have a single perspective of one um, something that you define as the problem, but unfortunately, in complexity, we have only weak problem that have uh, different people have different concern, uh, and then uh, it is um, problematic to uh, imagine that you can use just a single definition and, and what what we call an epistemic boxing that you are just uh, analyzing on one scale, one set of dimension, and uh, one definition of what the system is because already no. Let's imagine you want to define your country, what your country is. I mean, really, <laughs> it needs a lot of simplification to get this. And then the idea was, okay, so how can we uh, look at the way the European Commission is uh, generating policies and uh, try to have some sort of reflection and methodology to try to see whether or not uh, it would be possible to, uh, to do better. And the t title of the project was Magic, it would be moving to our adapting governance in complexity. What's exactly about that? To uh, moving to a governance in complexity rather than of complexity. Because the traditional way is, okay, it's complex, but then we can have the Cartesian dream of prediction and control, and then we can uh, know what is going on. <laughs> know what is the best thing to do and we are capable of doing it you know there are the three uh, assumptions they are very heroic and what if uh, we cannot uh, keep this assumption and we don't know what is going on <laughs> it is not clear what would be the best thing to do and let alone that we are capable of doing it and then how would look a different approach to the governance in this way and then we use case study uh, analysis of uh, different policy domains 
It was energy, water, environment, the circular economy, to, to check the quality of the process. So if I understand this right, we've known for a while that the world is complex and you can't just kind of tame that complexity in the old-fashioned way, the Cartesian way, as you put it, right? We need to properly engage with it and work with it. And then the point of this project was to evaluate how well EU policymakers are actually doing that in these particular areas. Okay, so the magic project that Maria just explained, it was also a response to a certain call. It was funded by Horizon 2020 under a water call. And the call itself acknowledged complexity. It was one of these nexus calls where, where the nexus is, like Mario said, it was water, energy, food, also climate nexus, right? And with this concept of the nexus as a kind of recognition in the policy sphere that you have um, challenges when you have, for instance, uh, contradicting goals between different policy areas, right? I, I would think that all of the projects that have been funded under those calls would claim that they deal with complexity somehow, and they do, but perhaps the majority of them have been rather trying to combine dynamic predictive models from each domain into a kind of super model to try to predict and do governance of complexity in the sense that you think, let's just put all the parts together and we get a complicated, very big data-driven model that is going to predict perfectly. I mean, th this is where this idea of the, uh, of the Cartesian dream comes in, I think, because we have known for more than 50 years that you can't do that, right? In non-linear, Because of non-linearity as a starter. But Mario, you may want to fill me in there. Yeah, um, I mean, the problem, this is what, what, what Roger was referring to, is uh, Frankenstein models that you put uh, one liver, one person, one, you put together, and you imagine that the person will uh, operate normally. Unfortunately, when you have, uh, with an axis, interaction between water, energy, food, uh, at different levels, at different scales, the entanglement cannot be analyzed within a single model. I'll give you a stupid example. You cannot say if Tuesday is before of July, okay? <laughs> Tuesday is before of Friday, and July is before then December, but July belongs to a descriptive domain that see 12 months in one year, and Tuesday and Friday belong to a descriptive domain seeing days in a week. If you have two different descriptive domains, uh, the numbers cannot be reduced to each other. The models are what is called in technical jargon unreducible. If you are dealing with something complex, the nexus in which you have whatever, you have biophysical issue, technical issue, economic issue, political issue, there is no way that you can have a, a dynamic model that can predict what happened. Moreover, a dynamic model doesn't represent change. It represents dynamic in the state space. Uh, a, a dynamic model is like a, a video of, of a tennis match. <laughs> you can go up and down, up and down, but always the same things happen. You cannot have that at a certain point a, a meteorite get in the, in the stadium. What happened in a dynamic system is already defined by the equation and by your choice of, of data. So if you have too many data, too many relevant things, and the fact that the system is evolving in time, uh, dynamic models are not good for making any prediction about the future. You are extrapolating your assumption in the representation, but this has nothing to do with the evolution of the things in the external world. 
so is the idea okay so take the the example you you propose of the calendar where you say uh, it's just a categoristic right you can't say if tuesday is before july because tuesday is a concept that belongs to the days of the week and july belongs to the months of the year and the two are irreducible well okay fine but then to continue the analogy it's certainly not true to say that we can't come up with a determinate model at a higher level that incorporates both those things in a complete way because of course we can it's called a calendar and it does indeed tell us the exact relationship between days of the week and months of the year and it also tells us by the way why the question does thursday come before july or tuesday or whatever is a is a silly question and not to, yeah totally no because uh, well, we had a very good example with the calendar at a certain point the model was not working they had easter in the wrong period of the year so they had uh, the reform of the Gregorian reform of the calendar, and they took out a certain number of days. Okay, uh, why? Because they were looking at external reference, not looking at the models. So you had that the external reference had forced a change in the inferential system to a point. And look how robust is the multi-scale analysis. We can still say the Cristoforo Colombo arrived in the United States in the morning on the 12th December, even though they took out in the middle, because after that we took out a bunch of days out of the accounting, because the morning referred to the position of the sun during the day. So that the morning remained in the analysis, even though you took out an enormous amount of time. Why is that? Because the accounting is multi-scale. Uh, is a complex way of, of keeping time. That is exactly the type of analysis that we do. We do analysis with different representation of event, a different scale. Mm. And if we can stay with the calendar, the calendar is wonderful. What do we do nowadays? We we add leap seconds, actually. <laughs> yeah. So we just sometimes we, we say, uh, okay, we have to add the leap seconds so that the Easter doesn't come in the wrong or for whatever purpose. So So this is going back to... George Spock's famous saying that is, I think it's taught in engineering studies all over the world that, as Mario said, you know, it's all models are wrong, but some are useful. So it all depends on the purpose. And of course, sometimes a, an extremely simple model is exactly what you need for your purpose, perhaps. You know, the, the climate model that says, uh, it seems like there is more energy going into the earth than going out. Okay. So that has a, a particular uh, use. But if, even if you go down to one little system, I mean, when I said this has been known for 50 or 60 years, I was thinking of, of Lawrence's uh, discovery in the 60s about the weather system. They did believe that weather prediction was going to be infinitely good as the computers became better and you had more numerical crunch power. But what is clear is that even a simple weather system you know, as a, a set of, of partial differential equations that have non-linear elements in them, already there you have the butterfly effect, as, as Lawrence called it, right? So you, it means that sometimes you can predict, sometimes you can't predict. And, and here, I think, is the crucial point. You know that the model doesn't work when it doesn't work. You can't predict when a predictive model stops working. And, and also, if I'm, so this would be the technical answer to your question, why it cannot be done, because you have in complex adaptive system a series of impredicative relations, you know, chicken, egg. So, you know, the, 
the government rule on citizen every day, but the citizen rule on government on election time. Paying taxes for, for the people is bad, but it's good for the government. You know, you have a series of relations that depending on what you are looking at, uh, you define good, bad, or causal relation in, in different way. So every time you are using a model, uh, you are in a way eliminating one possible explanation of one part of the story. Uh, and then uh, this, uh, it comes to uncomfortable knowledge that in order to have uh, uh, support for your choice and you want to give explanation, you have to suppress some information and doesn't uh, support your original explanations. And this happens all the time. There was a a keyword there that I would like just to explain a bit for those who who might not be familiar with it, which is the the concept of uncomfortable knowledge. So so this is a, a concept that I believe was originally coined by Steve Rayner, who unfortunately passed away not so long ago, who was exactly a, a social scientist on the science policy interface, among other things. So in, in 2012, he published a paper that was called Uncomfortable Knowledge, the Social Construction of Ignorance in Science and Environmental Policy Discourses. And his point was exactly that in order for any institution to work, in order for any policy institution, but also any um, operating, implementing governmental institution to work, it has to operate with a simplified version of the world. It can't take in all complexity because basically then you will be overwhelmed. Just to define the law about what that institution is going to to do, you have to specify which parts of reality you're going to look at. So it means that it has to construct ignorance. It has to create a space where it shields itself from certain parts of, of all the knowledge we have. Now, the problem with that is that it may shield itself from some knowledge that would have been important to reconsider how you define the institution, right? So sometimes, you let's say that you're, you're operating a body that is supposed to regulate water, fresh water, or the use of water, but then you're looking at the water and then you can't really look at health, you can't really look at all the other stuff. But at some point, somebody has knowledge telling you, but actually what you're doing now is impacting this other sector in a way that you didn't think about when you construct. And this is the uncomfortable knowledge, right? It's the knowledge that challenges the simplification that you did in the institution. Yeah. Uh, If I can add something about this concept is that uncomfortable knowledge uh, is not bad or good, is a necessity. I Just to give you an example, the, the pandemics of COVID, no? In uh, a discussion against the Novaks, uh, you have uncomfortable knowledge that there are people that died because of the vaccine, and there are people that die even though they are already vaccinated. Uh, this is a sort of uncomfortable knowledge that, of course, the society tends not to use or to uh, expand too much because you want to convince people to get vaccinated. Of course, in this, I hope that people will look in this data. They at the moment are uh, not considered by the mass media and to try to uh, have useful information because e- every type of knowledge is useful. Oh, but I mean, if you are in a situation of uh, crisis and you at a certain point you have to go for some explanation and justification of what you do, 
and then uh, inavoidably this will uh, generate a sort of uh, uh, ignorance uh, at the level of the society, not necessarily at, at the level of scientists. Scientists can watch the data, but I mean, then uh, we have, with uncomfortable knowledge, a beast that is difficult to classify in the sense that is an unavoidable gray area that you have to have. Again, complexity can handle very well this, whereas the official Cartesian dream doesn't. All right. So thinking about this particular Magic Nexus project, uh-huh. you were asked to analyze the quality of policymaking in the light of complexity. And I guess you then went back to the commission and presented your findings, uh-huh. right? What did you find? We, we developed a, a logic procedure to analyze the quality of policy. So we were checking the um, robustness and the usefulness of narratives. Because again, if you say the models is not a real thing, the real thing is the narrative within which the model has been developed. So um, we were looking at three uh, quality check, justification narrative, why you are doing this policy in the first place. Second, normative narratives, what you think that should be done, basically. Uh, and then uh, uh, explanation uh, narrative, how do we know that the chosen word is a good solution for the why? Oh, okay. And then you may have a different type of looking at the uh, plausibility and robustness of justification. So what are the concerns they are being considered? Why this concern? Why other not? And so on. Then the normative is what are the winner, the loser? Are we sure that this what is possible? Because the vast majority of the check that we did, what is uh, uh, expected by the commission is simply not possible. You know, decarbonize in 30 years, uh, whatever. I mean, we, we went through one by one. And uh, if you get a situation in which uh, the policy is not possible, then you can go to the explanation how they are um, explaining that this is possible when if you do some sort of back-on-the-envelope calculation, uh, it is not possible. i give you an example. We, we've been investing a lot of money in... Uh, use cooked oil, no? We consume uh, five liters of cooked oil, <laughs> of oil per person. The cooked oil is four liters. If you convert in biodiesel, it's one point, oh, let's put two liters of biodiesel per year per person. How can you imagine that this can uh, uh, substitute for fossil fuels? I mean, you see that there are uh, examples that you don't need to have any um, sophisticated model to say this is not plausible. As soon as you do that, you realize that the justification they are given like, uh, are not compatible with what is proposed and the explanation are not particularly good. Let's put it this way. And then the result were that uh, three types of results. One result was that looking at the policy that we looked, the, the policy were not particularly robust. Let's put it this way. A second is that... Uh, Rather than using evidence-based policy, that is, numbers in models within the epistemic box, would be better to use quantitative storytelling, look at different stories uh, with numbers, of course, that uh, are referring to different types of epistemic box, so you can see different aspects of a problem. And the third uh, result was exactly that after being paid by the commission, uh, 7.5 million to do this project, 
nobody wanted to discuss the result. At the level of DG or at the level of the agencies that could be interested in this, uh, it, it was difficult to have open public discussion about this result. Uh, we interacted with the European Parliament, with politicians, was completely different uh, because the politicians are happy to have uh, uncomfortable knowledge because they can avoid embarrassing uh, error or they can get an edge on the political competition. So the, the politicians were uh, eager to get uh, alternative point of view, but the staff uh, was not because uncomfortable knowledge was perceived as a threat to the legitimacy of the institution. You see that if you're saying, you know, uh, what you are saying is not good or this policy is not applicable. And then this probably is the most important result of magic is that uh, we have to learn how to communicate uncomfortable knowledge in a way that the people in the institution don't feel threatened by this. Mm-hmm. I think that one of one of the many things I learned through this project was to think more clearly about what we mean by the nexus. So, so what is the nexus? So you say, ah, nexus. For instance, we have the water, energy, food nexus. But but what is it? So uh, we came to distinguish between the nexus as a biophysical reality. So you can say, okay, there is something out there in the biophysical reality, and and when you do some back of the envelope calculation of that biophysical reality, you can find out that you're not going to run all the combustion engines on on cooking oil. You're not going to achieve a circular economy because the economy can't become circular. It is entropic, etc., etc. And then yet, as Mario says, that this kind of knowledge, it's on one hand, you could have Mario's interpretation that it's kind of it's an undesirable type of knowledge for for some actors that I don't want to hear it. You could also say that it's it doesn't impress them much. So when you enter a room with policymakers and you say, oh, "Now you're going to hear," you know, we have discovered that the economy can't become circular. The first reaction, at least in my experience, is, yeah, "Of course we know that." So, so then the question is, so, but why do you promote a policy of the circular economy then if you know that the economy can't be circular? And, and there, I think part of the explanation is exactly what is the nexus? So is the nexus about the biophysical reality out there or is it about the political reality in here where perhaps the, the problem for the policymaker is, Okay, but uh, you know, DG Environment, they own these policies, and then you have industry owning these, and you have, you know, okay, how do we reconcile one policy goal with the other? Now, often the way to do that is to say, okay, we imagine a win win solution. So the circular economy would be a type of win win solution. Biofuels is another win win solution. Uh, in a way, this becomes a kind of compromise between the different policy goals where everybody feels that they got something. Perhaps they get some kind of actions out of it as well. The problem is, of course, that it's all based on an underlying narrative that is not only impossible, but perhaps totally unfeasible. So there is a problem here. It's just that the, the problem doesn't always seem to impress the institutions so much. So, well, it sounds like you agree on the problem. The problem is that policymakers in these cases are committed to narratives that don't make sense, which imply policy options that, <laughs> that can't be done. Um, and that pointing that out uh, falls on deaf ears in some way. But then 
we've got two rival explanations for that problem. One is a bit more psychological, if I can put it that way, uh, that policymakers have deliberately closed their minds to the uncomfortable knowledge because they feel threatened by it somehow. And the other is kind of more political, right? Which is that policymakers also secretly know the policies don't stack up, but they are constrained by their political realities to, to commit to them anyway. Or to put it another way, that their solutions might not be scientifically feasible in the real world, but they are the only thing that's politically feasible inside the commission, inside the institution. Yeah, but if I can get in, uh, th this is about cognitive dissonance, because I, I have a fantastic story. During a project, you have to do a revision, no? So expert look at uh, what you did uh, in the first uh, second period. Yeah, at the same point, we were doing scenarios and we were uh, looking at 100% uh, renewable energy or 100% uh, food production inside the uh, Europe or something. And the uh, reviewers say, but this is ridiculous. Who can imagine that you can produce 100% uh, of energy on your own? Who can imagine? And you say, lady, are we discussing about circular economy? I mean, we are literally making a scenario of what is uh, uh, the written in the justification of the policy. You see the point. So then we arrive to a point in which the explanation or the uh, normative part, you know, replacing 5% is totally, and uh, they don't even replace the, <laughs> the target that they are setting, are far, far away of the justification narrative. And if you take out the justification narrative, why you do it in the first place? Because... If you uh, do not have enough land to produce food, because we uh, not even have to produce food, let alone to produce energy, really doesn't matter if you put uh, subsidies, technological improvement, whatever, uh, it will never fly. Uh, so, I mean, it, it is important to simultaneously check the three uh, dimensions, the justification, why you are doing it. Because at the moment, a lot of these policies are just patching targets one after another just to pretend that we are doing well. And uh, uh, in reality, the justification remains out of reach clearly all over the place. So um, we, we are dealing with what Robert uh, says. In reality, there is a, a cognitive dissonance <laughs> in the system that, you know, the nexus of one time belonged to the justification narrative. And the uh, analysis, biophysical analysis, is the explanation of the words. They are not uh, uh, consistent with each other. And, and this has not become better with the years, I, I would say. I mean, if you if you look at the European Green Deal, on one hand, I'm you know I think there is a lot of nice things to be said about the European Green Deal, and we can look at how the United States are faring and all of this, but. The second paragraph of the European Green Deal, sort of the most important, most ambitious document in, in this area for decades or ever, says the Green Deal is a new growth strategy that aims to transform the EU into a fair and prosperous society, blah, 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 where there are no net emissions of greenhouse gases in 2050 and where economic growth is decoupled from resource use. So, so we have an overall policy in the European Union to have the full decoupling between economic growth and resource use, where we have five decades of research showing that this cannot be done. 
that is the situation, right? And and yet we are talking about evidence-based policy. I mean, this is... <laughs> Extraordinary. I mean, in the 50s, 60s, we got a non-equilibrium thermodynamics, no? That basically uh, we are deceivative system, metabolic system. You have to get input from your... Uh, you are an open system. You have to get input from the outside and dump waste into your outside. This is the way a life, a whatever complex adaptive system works. Uh, how is it possible that we arrive to a point that, you know, the most elementary uh, notion of how uh, a complex adaptive system works are ignored? I mean, um, basically, I, I don't know if you can put it in your podcast, but we are, let's imagine someone is solved the problem of food security by saying we can eat our excrement, no? And you say, guys, <laughs> Uh, this is not a very uh, uh, relevant uh, suggestion, but this is the plan A that, you know, the United Nations, the European Union, the things is using to solve our uh, sustainability problem, the circular economy. The, the situation is serious, you know, let's put it this way. Okay, yeah, I understand. So now I'm not a scientist. I'm no expert in these areas, so I have to defer to you in the details. But I do hear alarm bells ringing a little when I hear two obvious experts like yourselves making a scientific argument that many others would reject. So, because I don't think it's just politicians who are, quote, ignoring science, unquote, and inventing impossible goals. I mean, I think at least in the case of the European Green Deal, that there is a lot of science underpinning it. That, you know, I've met and talked to scientists who strongly, strongly advocate a circular economy and net zero carbon emissions. So, like, as an outsider, I have to find some way to reconcile what you're saying with with that. So maybe one way to do this is is something like as follows. Suppose we're in a situation where everyone knows, the scientists know, the policymakers know, like everyone knows, that, for instance, a complete decoupling of economic growth from resource consumption is impossible. So 100% circular economy with no external inputs, as you say, can't be achieved, or at least can't be achieved while preserving what we have already. Okay. But even if that's true, we all acknowledge, let's say, that we want to still aim high. We want to decouple growth from consumption to a large degree. If not 100%, then, I don't know, 85% or whatever. And then the question comes, when we make policy and communicate that policy, what do we say? If we put it in non-absolute terms, which we admit is more realistic, then we end up saying, well, we want to mostly decouple growth of consumption, but we recognize that 15% uh, of our growth is still going to come from burning fossil fuels, or, or perhaps conversely. Um, but by doing so, our economies will become a bit weaker and parts of society will be left behind. Yeah. I think that's the kind of message that, politically speaking, is extremely dangerous because either you lose public support for the overall mission or you have every industry that currently relies on consuming resources to try to squeeze themselves into that 15% and you end up with like a, a race to be the most, a race to the bottom. And so to avoid that, you set the goal deliberately higher than you can really reach in order to retain some hope of reaching at least a good result. Now that, that, what do you think? That might not solve the problem you're describing, but might it explain it in a slightly less uh, cynical way? Um, I think so. Now, I, I really don't want to sound uh, cynical, and I'm I'm not. So the problem of cognitive dissonance is is a serious one, and I mean, who can 
who can claim that he or she is not at all a victim of cognitive dissonance in, in our time? I mean, I'm certainly not going to claim that for myself. And if you look at what I do as a citizen in a, in a wealthy country, I mean, it, it even gets worse. And it's really important for me, at least, to emphasize that I'm, I'm not judging or implying any bad intentions or anything like this here. Rather, in, in the re research we've done on this, what we do meet are, even if we don't think perhaps that our advice is taken the way that we would like it to, when we interact with policymakers uh, in, in Europe, it is my experience that these are people who really try to do their best. And in the core, there is some kind of idealist conviction that we have to try to do the right thing. Okay. But the problem here is this. How, how should I put this? So Toyota used to have a slogan where they said they, they wanted impossible targets. So they said, you know, the, the target ultimate goal of Toyota is to create a car that makes the air cleaner. And you can make the same argument there, right? So you say, okay, so our ultimate goal is that the, the Toyota car will purify and decontaminate our atmosphere. Now, the problem with having that kind of narrative is, yeah, okay, it sets a high goal. And this is perhaps useful given that we really want to have these cars and we try to make the best out of them uh, as we can. But the problem here is, what if we shouldn't have so many cars? And this translates really well when you get to the question of the biofuels or energy efficiency or the circular economy or any of these. Because when you're setting this kind of unrealistic absolute goal, you're in a way legitimizing the quest to try to improve in that direction. And with it comes not only this vision or the imaginary, but also indicators directed towards some of these goals. But what if these indicators are the wrong indicators? What if we rather needed indicators that actually addressed the real biophysical problems that we are facing rather than, say, measuring circularity or something like that? Um, yeah, I, I would add two, two points. Uh, one point is what you were saying, we can have 75% of circularities. Uh, uh, no, Toby. I mean, if someone look at the numbers, there are numbers, okay? Of what going in the society, 55% is food and energy. You cannot recycle after using gone. 44% material construction remain there. So 97% of the material flow cannot be recycled. So we are talking about how much can you recycle of the three or four that we cannot even. Uh, but the, this is nothing. The real issue is that there is water in the picture and nobody uh, calculate. Water evapotranspirate to make the food is thousand times more than all the material flow solid that we are there is nothing that can be recirculated in an economy. It's just the fact that people talk about legend, not the, the reality. And that this is the first point. The second point that I believe that is more politically relevant is that you have a society is expressing social practices that are there to reduce our stress and to make possible to reproduce and to have a good life. Okay. So what we have to do is to change our social practice. What we are doing now, we want to have new business models, new uh, innovation technology to prevent that we change our social practice. So we are in a situation which all our strategy for sustainability 
is aiming at exactly the opposite <laughs> uh, result they should be at. We have to change our social practice. We are not to have fancier technology to stabilize what we are doing. Uh, this is what uh, Silvia Funtovic and Jerry Ravetz in Postnormal Science call uh, tragedy of change. We have to accept, we have to change what we are doing now. The sooner we start discussing this, the better. Now we are continuing to say, yes, we can, no problem, no problem, with more technology, more business. If you are looking at the killing curve, <laughs> the emission, the emissions are going up. They do this uh, Paris Agreement, Kyoto Brother, we do another. Nothing happened. If you look at Google uh, killing curve, you see that the emissions are going up. And two days ago, the BBC, they were mentioning a study done by the Stockholm Environmental Institute. They are expecting that in the next, uh, in 2030, the uh, consumption of oil will increase significantly. So uh, this, all this discussion that we are doing is uh, in matrix. We are living in the imaginary world in which we are reducing the emission, all the targets are achieved, but this is simply due to a bad accounting. So uh, this is, is the issue that, I mean, uh, uh, we started with the COVID, that the uncomfortable knowledge could be good and bad, but uh, to a certain extent, if you have a situation in which the vaccination is killing 95% of the people vaccinated, uh, at that point, uh, you cannot uh, ignore uh, this type of uncomfortable knowledge. You, know, you look at the killing curve and you see, uh, but I mean, uh, I don't know, it, it is time that we can get a little bit more into the accumulating uh, quantity of uncomfortable knowledge because otherwise we get in what uh, is called ancien regime syndrome. The establishment can no longer process feed negative feedback from the environment because they prefer uh, the denial. And, and uh, this could be good in stabilizing the institution in the short term, but not in the long term. Because the more, the more you go in Ancien Regime, the more the system becomes fragile. So, Ancien Regime syndrome. This is actually the, the biggest concern, I think. Uh, that uh, from this kind of analysis, it looks like our institutions are moving into becoming a senescent system. But I want to give the alternative. You know, what could the Green Deal have said? It could have said, we will produce a modern blah, blah, blah society in 2050 where we have understood and taken into account that economic growth cannot be decoupled from resource use. I mean, that could actually have been an objective. And I, I want to say something positive here. I, I'm enjoying a lot a collaboration with the European Environment Agency. I mean, among all the agencies, I think that the European Environment Agency, when you read their state and outlook reports, they are actually saying the things that we're saying now. They say it over 200 pages, but they, they are, in fact, saying it. And they are also saying that, look at the indicators. It's not only going in the bad direction, but there is what they call the great acceleration. So they are, in fact, saying this. And then, of course, we get to the problem that, okay, so what is our role as scientists then? Is it just to produce more despair and, and make people just give up? I mean, th this is the kind of complaint that you get when you when you are candid on these things. Of course, we need to talk about hope. How should we think ahead? What are we going to do? How are we going to continue to be hopeful? To me, that vision of that actually our institutions 
take into account that you can't decouple resource use from economic growth. That's a hopeful vision, because if, you, if we actually came to admit that, we can start to look for other options. And this is what we're exploring in a collaboration with the, with the EEA that is called Narratives for Change. So we published in January 2021 the first of these narratives together with the EEA that was called Growth Without Economic Growth. And it said these things. And it said, okay, if we are forced to think about progress that won't be economic growth, what could progress mean then? Well, it could mean many things. It could mean moral progress. It could mean cultural progress. It's just not higher consumption type of progress. Okay, so we have to give up certain things, but it doesn't mean that the future is going to be terrible, is it? it? It just means that we have to prioritize differently and we have to develop as humans in a different way. But then at some point, we have to stop clinging to these old values that at the moment are penetrating uh, our societies and institutions. Yeah, yeah. And, and moreover, what I'm saying is that this uh, idea of tragedy, pessimism, that it will be, we will go back to the cave if we don't do technical innovation and things, is, is not granted. In the 60s, in Europe, we were consuming half of the energy that we are consuming now. Do you believe that the, in the 60s, with the Beatles things, people were less happy than they are now? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, this idea that we are assuming that there is a very strong correlation between GDP and energy consumption, we have to keep having the GDP and the energy consumption going up because we will be happier, uh, probably is not even true. Uh, so I would say that if I am in a situation of crisis, and I have the person in charge saying, no problem, yes, we can, everything is under control. Let's say you are on an airplane with the, with the engine on fire and, and the pilot say, no problem, guys, yes, we can. And you have another pilot that say, okay, guys, Houston, we have a problem. Let's try to see it. I think that by doing this and this, if you collaborate, we can get out of it. I will trust more the second type of pilot than the first time. In my view, at this point, uh, I would say that it's time to change strategies. We cannot go on. Uh, and nobody believe it anymore, moreover, guys. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're maybe just describing a fundamental challenge about the way we govern our societies. We have these two kind of fundamentally incompatible sources of authority. One is science, which is which you could express as like what we know, and the other is government, democratic government, which you could express as what we want. And the thing about democratic government is that it needs to bring together many different perspectives and needs and opinions and worldviews. I mean, it's not just that it needs to, but it's also designed very deliberately to do that uh, and to come to a position which works for enough people that it can pass the democratic test. In other words, a compromise. And then the thing about science is, of course, there is no compromise. The aim of science is to describe the way the external world really is, whether we like it or not. So when we have a situation where the policymaker is forced to choose between a scientific advisor whose advice is, I don't know, hard to hear in the way that you're describing, you know, we need a complete paradigm shift, we need to value different things, we need to somehow stop wanting what we currently want. And on the other hand, they have any number of alternative proposals which seek to, which seek to compromise between different views and give enough people what they want to pass that test of democratic acceptability. 
Of course, the poor policymaker is always going to be drawn to the compromise option. And it's not really their fault because that's what the system is set up to do. I I guess my question is, what is the role of the science advisor really in this situation? When, When science really looks that radical, is it even possible to fit it into a democratic system at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the role of, of scientists, uh, as you say before, was to uh, generate knowledge claim about uh, the external world and what can be done, the consequence, uh, and the best they can, you know, the most uh, reliable. But, as you said, after the French Revolution, when at a certain point the modern state decide to get rid of religion, you had a problem of legitimacy. So why we should do what the, the government says? Why we should do that? Because the scientists say so. And then this is the Cartesian dream, no? The scientists know better, okay? So at a certain point, now the scientists have a dual role, no? Discussing about knowledge claim about the external world. Second, provide justification for the legitimacy of the government. And especially when you were saying before, this is Habermas, no? The mass uh, democracy. Uh, the only way that the politicians have to remain uh, in government is to make them happy. So they, in order to have legitimacy, they have to endorse the Cartesian dream. Yeah, no problem. Yes, we can. <laughs> uh, if you start saying, Houston, we have a problem, you uh, uh, have a political discussion. In this case, we don't have a political discussion. We have technical discussion, how to reduce the emission. So the Cartesian dream uh, give legitimacy to the, to the government, to the establishment, avoiding uh, political discussion. Because if you have a problem, then how to solve the problem that we cannot solve imply that we have to negotiate. No? Using dreams, uh, socio-technical imaginaries, is fantastic because it's a win-win-win. Everyone wins. No, there is no conflict or no anything. No? So uh, it is true that the, the scientists are cut in the middle because look, uh, coming back to the example of the, of the pandemic, the COVID, no? the scientists were really, really in bad shape because they were uh, attacked uh, when they were going for uncomfortable knowledge. Because in my view, the whole story of the, of the COVID was handled badly. You cannot say we do this because it's the ultimate truth, because it's the best things we can do, and then it's a way that we can help each other. Then everyone can understand that the vaccine is not perfect, it's not the ultimate solution, but it's the best we can do. If we care with each other, we do it. But if you go for the other solution, this is the ultimate, then you have a problem, you will get uncomfortable knowledge into it. No, So the big problem is that we are still using science as religion. The, the science know what is better, and then this is why the, the government is always right. In this situation, the role of the scientists is uh, really difficult because they either do the first role, try to do the best that they can to describe the external world, or trying to legitimize the government by saying that they know what they are doing. Well, I agree, you know, but, but I, I mean... So I guess my, my work description is to be a professor of, of philosophy of science. So when, when we talk about science, you know, my, my first reaction would always be to say, okay, so what have we learned from 100 years of philosophy of science? It's, there is no such one thing called science. Science is a lot of stuff, right? So also if we move into these particular uh, questions that we're discussing or the circular economy or whatever, you will find a lot of science and, and a lot of it will be the type of um, 
research projects that will actually align themselves perfectly with the kind of discourse that you have in the European Green Deal or, or, or wherever, right? That just assuming these values and saying, okay, let's see what we can do. And then we get the funding and everything is going really well. So that's also part of science. And that has to be acknowledged. But then we also have, if we think about social science, I think that part of the role of social science is that it also helps contribute in the innovation of social structure and in, in an innovation of institutions in, in our society, right? So it's, it's also to take part in this discussion about, okay, we do understand that when the policymaker has to choose between either saying, everything is wrong, we have to scrap all our policies, or, or rather, let's go for this win-win solution that, you know, is, we, we do understand what the person normally has to do, like you're implying, Toby, but, but there is no quick fix to these problems. I mean, th there is a deep need for institutional change and change of social practices, and I can't imagine that this is going to take less than 100 years. I mean, it, it didn't used to take less than 100 years when you think about these big shifts. There won't be any quick fix here. There, there, there may be not so much the individual policymaker in a, a particular office of the European Commission can do. But on the other hand, I think, ugh, I mean, I should be careful now, but one of my big formative experiences when I was young was that we got a delegation from Ukraine. Um, um, this was this was not many years after the, the wall had been torn down. Um, there was a Ukrainian philosopher in, in the delegation. He had never been abroad before. That is beyond the Soviet Union and the East Bloc. He gave a, a lecture where he talked about his life. Uh, he had spent many years in, in a concentration camp in the Gulag. And this was because after Khrushchev, when Brezhnev uh, came into office, things started to closed down again, and there was even less tolerance with, with dissidents and, and criticism. And at that moment, he volunteered in his dissident group to write a letter to the newspaper, sort of just reminding the Ukrainian Communist Party that they were violating human rights. Uh, and of course, they got him during the night, and he was sent away. He had a wife and a, and a small child. But what he said really impressed me is that, you know, he knew he had it coming, and he knew that this wouldn't have a great impact but it shouldn't become silent. You know, somebody has to say, if it becomes all silent, that's really, really dangerous. And this is how I see, you know, our, uh, you know, work ethic in a way that we're not even sent into Gulag. I mean, the worst things that typically happen to people like Mario and me is that our grant proposals are being rejected and, and, the, pub and the publications are being rejected from a lot of journals. That's okay, you know. I mean, they, they don't even torture me. So I, I think that this this role is really important. And when you talk about this, I've been I've been talking to civil servants in 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 Europe about these things for 20 years. And in the meeting, in their official meeting, it may be difficult to talk about, but when you have a, a cup of coffee or perhaps even something else afterwards. 95% of them would say, of course, you know, this is how I see it too, but what can we do? So I think that, you know, if the dissidents keep on talking, you know, if 95% actually agree, and if we get to a point where 95% say status quo is becoming a liability, I, I mean, they don't vote for us anymore. They don't want, you know, and what are we getting instead? What, what are the yellow vests? 
What is Brexit about? If this is not also people saying that something is wrong and you can't trust the narratives of the old establishment anymore, then of course, what do they have of alternatives? They have the worst kinds of alternatives that will probably make the world even worse. But we need to have this conversation to get other alternatives up where people who are generally concerned don't have to vote for Donald Trump or or Boris Johnson. Mario, the last word, but briefly. Yeah, the the, the last word is is a very ugly reflection. If you keep saying there is no problem, yes, we can, and then you are not delivering, uh, it is unavoidable that we start blaming people. It is possible, but we don't do it because that idiots. The okay, we do not have one hundred years to <laughs> adjust to uh, external limits. So if we do not start discussing about the fact that we have to uh, adjust, the things that can happen is violence, war, or things because someone we start blaming others about the fact that they cannot have something that is possible. Okay. So, in a way, what worries me uh, the most, not that we will have to half our consumption of energy, we did it in the 60s, it was perfectly okay, we could have a very nice life, is that the people, we start attacking each other, uh, saying that is they are blaming another group, another race, another whatever, for the fact that they cannot achieve what they are expecting, and they are told that is possible. When you have a restriction, the social system collapses for internal implosion. You never eat the external, look at Soviet Union, whatever, because humans are anticipatory system. When they see that the system doesn't go anywhere, they just implode. You know? And it's already happening. Look, it's already happening. In Europe, there is not a single country with a political majority. They are doing whatever to do. So the system is clearly showing that we are about to implode. I would say that it would be uh, wise to start uh, discussing on the fact that Houston, we have a problem and not yes, we can, because yes, we can is a very dangerous uh, message. I totally agree with this. Uh, And to finish on a positive note, I mean, Antonio Gramsci, while he was sitting in Italian prison, he he wrote his prison notes book, right? And, And in there, there's a famous quote where he says, The crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. We are in this interregnum. We have a lot of morbid symptoms. Part of the old is this belief that we can have strict separation between science and government, citizenship, civil society. Somebody will provide the magic bullet, the silver bullets that will solve all the problems. And the new that is struggling to be born is not only to find out how to have a good life with half of the energy consumption or or whatever, but it's also that actually in order to produce these new social practices that will take us into the new, we have to have much broader collaboration between science, policy, civil society, citizens, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, our policymakers see it. They call it transdisciplinarity, co-creation, et cetera, et cetera. I think there are people, not only in the European Commission, but also in the OECD, who see this very clearly. And they are starting to adopt the kind of concepts that are needed for it. 
All right, well, I have to put an end to this battle to have the last word be positive or, or alarming. But I, I think whichever perspective the audience goes away with, it has been an undeniably fascinating and really challenging conversation. So I hope that you can continue to point out to Houston when there's a problem uh, and indeed that your treatment in response continues to be no worse than having the occasional grant application rejected because it's absolutely clear uh, that we need a range of articulate and well-informed voices on the scientific side if we want this society thing to continue to function. So thank you very much indeed, both of you, Roger Strand and Mario Giampietro. Thank you. Okay, thank you thank for you. having us. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko, so I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.